Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for the UFC 285 preview show. My name is Carl Bainbridge and I am joined by the man on the right-hand side of my screen. He is the Alan Shearer to my Les Ferdinand. It's Joe Neal. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Glad to be the Curtis Hawkins to your Zack Ryder, the Etchheads. Yep. Probably one of the more <laughs> underrated uh, tag teams, I feel, of the new generation either. Not the new generation, uh, Ruthless uh, Aggression. Yeah, they were awesome. Like, I, I love main event heel edge, so him having cronies that I enjoyed was A-plus for me. Because what was he stable? Because it was them two, him, La Familia. Vicky, uh, Chavo, and they had that big ball guy as well. Did they have a ball? I remember La Familia, and I think that was them. Because so I we, think they named it that, like, La Familia, the family. So we've got football, and rares. we've got pro wrestling, and no MMA so far on this show. None. Sorry. <laughs> this is morning combat. This is just morning combat, isn't it? A naff morning combat. It absolutely is. It's morning combat with much more OSW in it. <laughs> for people who do want to hear us talking about MMA, we want to say a big thank you for tuning in to the show. We will be getting to all of the fights of what is set to be one of the biggest cards of 2023. Already three months into the year, and we've already got ourselves a belter. Before we do that, though... Again, we want to say a big thank you to everyone who's been supporting the channel. If you like what we're doing here, we do have a Patreon page. It is patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. We also have an Instagram feed and also a Twitter page at incagefighting. Joe, you've also got your Twitch stream. Where's the best place for people to see and hear what you're up to away from the camera? Uh, I haven't been streaming as much lately uh, due to some personal issues. Good issues, though. Uh, good things. But uh, I've been much more active on Twitter. I'm always trying to talk and, uh, you know, joke around and crack jokes. Uh, I got to see the John Jones biopic last night. I got to talk about that. Cocaine Twitter. And Yeah, it was fantastic, actually. <laughs> Surprisingly good. I don't I don't care for so bad it's good movies, but that was actually like a good movie. So getting to talk about that movie was fun. And uh, a couple other things. Sometimes I'm just joking around, clowning. So catch me on there. Definitely saw very entertaining stuff, and I hope that the preview show is going to be entertaining as well. UFC 285 is just around the corner. It will be taking place on Saturday. Now, on the whole, I think it's safe to say that the start of the year for the UFC has been pretty underwhelming. I think that the pay-per-views have been pretty solid on the whole, but along with that, we've also had some quite forgettable uh, fight night cards taking place in the Apex. I feel like UFC 285, though... It's when the UFC start kicking things into high gear, as it were. We've had the slow stuff. We've got the sort of like, like the Sean Strickland fight nights out the way. And now we're getting mm. to, we're traveling on the road again a little bit more. We've got this high profile pay-per-view. Is this where the UFC start thinking, okay, let's answer those critics. Let's give them a belter. Uh, it feels like it. It, uh, it feels like they're a little bit of like an apology. Like, oh, sorry, we, you know... Uh, we are having 60 apex cards this year where 20 or 19 of the 20 fighters are from the contender series. Here's a really good card to kind of hold you over and, um, which I appreciate, but at the, uh, at the same time, ah, man, there's, there's almost too many apex cards. Uh, I gotta be honest I, I, I'm covering one tonight. I only know of two fights on it. Tatiana Suarez and, uh, the main event, Nikita Krylov and Ryan Spann. It's like, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, it, it hasn't been very good so far. 
and and the amount yeah. of random heavyweight main card fights that they have like chase sherman feels like he's on every single fight night yeah i i, I think i've covered i i i'm not gonna do it myself but i wonder who is the most covered guy on my recaps and i'm gonna probably pick like chase sherman uh maybe claudio puyez who was who was awesome for like he still is who cares if he lost his last fight um there's a couple of guys, but it's like Chase Sherman is gotta be up there, like in the at least in the top three. Javid Van Deva, he seems to be on all yeah. the time. Him too. Uh, Josh Parisian fought last week. I feel like I see him all the time. Do you feel like, obviously, the UFC now have their deal with ESPN, and as part mm. of that deal, it's basically we'll give you X amount of money if you put on Y amount of events over the year, because the UFC have this money already at their disposal do you feel like they're sort of half-hearting things a little bit they don't need to try because they're already getting paid yeah Yeah, i feel like that too i feel like that a lot um i feel i definitely it definitely feels like that i think i i i bet there's a stat out there that's like the number of events on average a year pre like uh, espn and then post ESPN, I bet that post ESPN, it's even like triple, quadrupled. It was great during 2020, like when nothing is going on, like leaving the house feels scary and like, you know, like a horror movie going outside. You don't really know what to do. I'm stuck in the house on a Saturday. There's fights. It was like a golden moment, a golden period. I, I really appreciate that in 2020. Uh, having some fun that year was nice. But uh, it kind of feels like it's overstayed its welcome a little bit with me. Uh, I'm not trying to complain about the recaps. I'm not doing that at all because I love doing those. But it's like, dude, there's cards all the time. And last week, uh, I love the Jim Miller fight. I thought that fight was pretty good. And the Aaron Blanchfield one was good. There was another one that was really good. I didn't get the cover. But for the most part, that card was like, ah, okay. I think, that, know, might have been standard. The, I think that might have been the Evan Elder fight. Yes, it was that one. Yeah, that was pretty good. I just didn't have time to talk about it because I had to talk about William Knight standing there for 15 minutes. <laughs> it, it, it was much more important to talk about, i got to be honest. I, I think it was probably the biggest talking point from, um, apart from Evan Blanchfield, the second biggest talking yeah. point was William Knight. Unbelievable. Like, I, I told my best friend literally, like, the next day, I said, dude, we messed up not watching that card live. Like, I wish we saw that fight. Like, it was so... We would have been cracking up. Just like, what is happening? Like, it was... It was like a a glorious train wreck. So, I had fun watching that fight. You know, somehow. (laughs) We're going to turn our attention to UFC 285. I'm going to be starting off by talking about the prelims. You can see those on our screen right now. Now, I always usually say, when it comes to Twitter, when it comes to Facebook, places like that, I usually say, if you want to know who the UFC have in mind as potentially stars of the future, go to a John Jones or Conor McGregor card or International Fight Week and have a look at who's on the prelims because you'll always see those sort of unbeaten prospects or sort of sort of guys who have that it factor and they're always on the prelims. And you can see plenty of those when you look on this card right now. One guy that I think most people are going to be talking about and it's going to be the first fight we're going to be discussing on the prelims it's possibly last chance saloon for Cody Garbrandt. He had that venture at flyweight. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for him. He's going back up to bantamweight. He's taking on Trevin Jones. And I think it's safe to say Cody Garbrandt, yes, he won the title in 2016. 
probably one of the best performances of all time to beat Dominic Cruz in the way that he did. And yet he goes into this fight potentially fighting for his UFC career. It's, it's a crazy downfall. Um, I, I've covered, uh, not to plug myself, but in the Retro Review series, I've covered his losses to TJ Dillashaw, both of them. And in the first one, he's looking fantastic until he gets caught with the kick. It seems like it rattled him a little too hard, and then he gets finished. The second fight, pure emotion, like not a lot of like game planning. It's, it's just load up on the right hand, do it. And then he had the Pedro Munoz fight where he did the exact same thing. Um, and I think taking that punishment definitely like hurt his durability. And it now that's always the question. And uh, then he went down in weight class. I thought he looked decent against Rob Font. He didn't get finished, which is, you know, that I hate being that guy, but that's actually that's a step up, you know, like, oh, you weren't finished. Like, that's great. Like against Rob Font, who knocks out a lot of people. Um, then that when he went to flyweight, I was like, okay, you know, he's a smaller 135er, like at least in terms of stature, you know, he's definitely like Algerman Sterling would is massive compared to Cody Garbrandt. And, uh, so I was like, okay, that's a, I, I understand the mindset, but cutting weight also lowers your durability. So I, I and then he's going against Kai Kara France who hits very hard for flyweight. It's like, oh, I don't know about this. So, uh, I, it's been a, a rough little bit for him for sure. But sometimes you get, when you look at a fighter's downfall, sometimes they'll suffer that big humbling loss that knocks a lot of their confidence. You look like a Hen and Barrow situation. With oh, Cody yeah. Garbrandt, it's not as if Cody has stopped fighting. He's, he's not lost the tools which got him to the dance. He's still fighting very aggressively. He's still got great boxing. It's, it's more like what happened to Chuck Liddell in his later losses. Mm. He's still doing the same things, right? It's just he doesn't have the chin to get away with it anymore. Yeah, like Vanderlei. It's like what I always think of. But Chuck Chuck is probably more on the nail. Like, in terms of just, you know, it went, he went from, you know, I, I per, I'm personally in the camp of like, oh, Chuck never had it, like the best chin. He was good, but not like great. But then, like, it got worse. Like, there's no denying that it, did, it got worse. And, uh, and that's kind of like the thing is like it, it, he like you said exactly he has all the tools he's just as athletic he's just as quick he definitely has the skills um but that that chin just isn't there and sadly that's part of the game it's like Frankie Edgar sadly Ugh, you know yeah don't remind me of that that was sad to watch I'm 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 disgusted that I remembered it Ugh. With that being said, though, I expect Cody Garbrandt to win this fight. Uh, Trevin Jones, three-fight losing streak at the moment in the UFC, so he's fighting for his company career. And I think as well mm. the fact that they're giving Garbrandt the ESPN headliner on a John Jones undercard. The company still want the Cody Garbrandt experiment to happen. Yeah, uh, like... <laughs> I'm trying to find out how to navigate this. But... Um... Cody Garbrandt puts eyes on his fights if he's in the main event. Um, because for me, if like if I find out, hey, Cody Garbrandt doesn't like this guy and he's fighting him in the main event, I'm watching that press conference. I got to see how he ruins what he's trying to say. Like I, I have watched compilations of the man trying to like have conversations and trash talking. And it is some of the funniest things I have ever seen. I will never forget 
Dominic Cruz and the TJ stuff. TJ's not a great talker, but like Cody Garbron is so much worse that it's like he's digging holes. Like yeah, he taught everybody at Team Alpha Male, and even me had to do steroids and get not not get caught. Thanks, man. Thanks. You just ruined us, you know, kind of thing. And uh, it's amazing. Um, so, but like he was like take 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 that out of it, right? In the cage, that that Dominic Cruz performance was so insane that we still talk about it to this day and still put it up on that incredibly high pedestal. Who who doesn't want to see a fighter of his attributes and skill set in the main event scene? Like again at Bantamweight, the best division on the planet, and you don't want a guy like that that high up. I I understand completely the UFC still pushing him. Uh, some of the other fights that are taking place on the prelims, which we'll uh, devote a little bit of time to. Um, two potential nominees for the boys' stable, Derek Brunson taking on Drickus Duplessis. Absolutely, boy, boy material. Now, I always have a soft spot for Drickus. He's not actually in mm -hmm. my stable, but he's just right on the... He's almost sort of like on the fence looking into the stable, as it were. Um, mm. I just think... I find it such a strange anomaly with him because he's obviously got a lot of great physical attributes. But you look at the way he punches and you think, how? He just seems to get away with it. It's like, I made a comparison. You know, in pro wrestling, when Bailey was a babyface and she had those like inflatable mm. men, that's what he's yeah, after like. He's like a tube man. I, uh, I thought you were going to say that. Um, oh, I'm going to forget her name. Uh, who is the chicken TNA that knocked out Charmella? Uh, yes i that's what i i feel like you were going to but um i, I forgot who it was someone i know described him as a t-rex because he has like huge shoulders and his arms go out to here very um, powerful kicks though i mean i know we make oh, jokes yeah. about him but he's got as mentioned before he has got something to be in the top 10 he's he's really good like he I might have to graduate a guy from my boy stable. If someone has Drickus Duplessis in their boy stable, you're probably going to have to graduate him soon. I'm sorry. Um, like, he, if he's champion and still punching like that, maybe. But, like, I mean, uh, but still, like, he's very good. Uh, he knocked out. Uh, I bring this up every time he fights. I brought Sold it up like. on the Darren Till. Yeah. Who I am incredibly high on. If that guy gets signed to the UFC, I'm like, all right, put him in there with Gilbert Burns now. Like, this guy is ready, you know. Like he knocked out Soldic, and that's says a lot about the striker of Soldic's caliber. So I mean, he clearly can strike. He has a pretty solid grappling game. Like it's underrated. No one talks about it. Everybody talks about the striking, mostly his kicks. Uh, and um, but his grappling was good. Like you know, Darren Till isn't the best grappler on the planet, but uh, he is a little tricky to get down. Derek Brunson had a little trouble getting him down, and uh, at first, at least. And Drickus Duplessis got him down a couple times pretty pretty well. And then once he was on, got him down, beat him up, choked him out. What would a Drickus Duplessis, let's assume that he beats Derek Brunson. And I think it is mm. a very realistic possibility, given that Derek Brunson's now, I think, what, 38 years old? Coming off a oh, loss, wow. and it was a brutal loss to um, uh, Jared Cannonier. If, yeah. if Drickus gets into the top five, is this a sign of Drickus being that sort of elite level fighter? Or is it maybe the middleweight is in a bit of a lull and he's sort of taking advantage of it? I feel like it's the latter, sadly. Um, so at middleweight, I kind of sit there and I go, who do I truly think is a contender? Like, could win the belt against 
um, Izzy, the winner of Izzy and uh, Pajeda to, uh, four now. Um, and I go Rob. And then I kind of zone out after that. And that's just like, and you could, you could argue that the division's in a very good spot, I think. And that just the top three guys are just that significantly, at least two and a half of the three guys are up there just that high up. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. It, it, it feels like, uh, I, I remember when like Luke Rockhold was champion and Bisping, uh, like had just beat him. I remember sitting there going like, this division's kind of crazy. Like around that era, this division's crazy. You have Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker's coming up. Jacare Souza's still around. Kelvin Gaslam's coming up. Chris Weidman's still around. Gagard Musasi's around. Like all these guys could be champion at some point. And like it was stacked. It felt it like felt legitimately super stacked. And now we really don't say that. And um so I don't know. I think <laughs> the true test would be can he beat uh Sean Strickland? <laughs> Actually, now that I think about it. How is uh, uh if he can take Sean Strickland as well, then okay, you know, Sean Strickland definitely feels like that gatekeeper at one eighty five right now. I'm hoping that Jack Slack's not watching this video because you mentioning Musasi and those elite level middleweights will probably trigger. Oh him. man. Oh, I I apologize, Mr. Slack. I'm uh, he is an all time good fighter, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> the still the best Jack Slack quote is all time good, Gegard Musasi. Oh. <laughs> Any other names on the prelims that we should keep an eye out for? Um, well, there's there's a couple. I have a bunch here. Uh, I only have Marquez for the Miley Cyrus joke, so we'll skip that one. But I do like the guy. I want to. We, we both talked about it actually before this. Uh, the, uh, we were recording. We both said, "Oh, we we do like Julian Marquez. He does come across as a very good guy, and uh, pretty tough too. Like he, I think, was it Bruno Silva or Robocop that got him? Uh, he Robocop. took a lot of shots. Yeah, he took a lot of shots and was like still trying to hang in there. Who hits Robocop hits really hard. Um, I think Vivi and Amanda Hebos could be, could be it could be an all right fight. They're both talented. Uh, they're both ranked, and um, it could be like that fight could be at least like kind of important. I feel like Amanda Hebos. We had our expectations up here. Then the Marina Rodriguez fight happened, and it kind of lowered us to Caitlin Chukagan as well fight kind of lowered our expectations but she's at least interesting and in, in, is a finisher she can be a finisher like at least on the ground um so i think that fight could be pretty good I'm, and vivi I, has a lot of power for 125 as well oh yeah yeah and uh and i just hope that uh, oh i feel bad for vivi how i associate her is oh yeah she really thought she won her last fight like, uh, she was, like, visibly upset, throwing the hands up after just getting dominated. That was weird, I thought. But uh, that's not fair to her. But I think that fight could be actually be pretty good. Uh, I think that fight, I would, if someone is watching the prelims early and catches it, like, hey, you know, this fight, that keep an eye out for that one. It could be pretty solid. And one final note before we get onto the main card as well. Uh, given how many sort of main, not main card appearances, but how many big cards he's appeared on, no was around Ian Gary. Yeah, um, it honestly, I have it here in my notes that it gives me joy seeing him this low on the prelims um, because he talks very highly of himself and the fans just aren't getting behind it and the UFC still pushing him, but he is notably lower on the card than I feel like he thought he would be. Um, but one thing kind of interesting here 
is uh, I hope I don't say his name wrong, but Song Kanan, he's actually kind of underrated. Like he has some skill and power. He could give Ian Gary some trouble, and I think he actually could pull off the upset here. Will there be any chance of an upset when we go to our main card? Fight number one, we are going up to the middleweight division, and we're going to arguably one of the most eagerly anticipated UFC debuts for a good few years. Bo Nickel will be making his octagon bow, and he'll be taking on Jamie Pickett. Um, at the moment, the odds for this one, I think it's safe to say which way the bookmakers are going. Bo Nickel is a minus 1600 favorite. You can get Jamie Pickett in at plus 950. And I've been doing a little bit of research. If we were to look exclusively at the UFC, Bo Nickel, as things stands right now, is the fourth biggest betting favorite in company history. The biggest ever being Alexander Romanov versus Chase Sherman, where he was minus 2200 to win that fight. And this is the guy's UFC debut, and he's only had three fights in his entire career. It's a sign of how highly regarded a lot of people rate this guy. Mm. For good reason. Uh, <laughs> he is, uh, God, he is white hot. Uh, like, I, I have it here that he is probably the hottest prospect in the sport right now, with probably the loudest mouth out of any of those prospects. And he kind of, like, he might be talking a little too big for his britches. Like, I mean, I'm not going to, like, he was saying he's going to take down he could take down Adesanya, like if they should have just given him a title fight almost like he was saying some craziness. But that said, this guy, at least like in terms of aura, it feels like he's just going to take everybody down and tap him out or just pound on him. And like he is a super wrestler. I watched his wrestling matches in college for researching this. I was haunted. Um my, my dad's best friend was a wrestler at uh, University of Oklahoma. And I asked him, I said, hey, how good do you think Bo Nickel is? And he literally put, that guy is terrifying. Like, give him, a, he needs to get a belt within two years, if that. And I'm like, okay. Um, it, it definitely feels like a little something special is going to happen with that debut. Uh, definitely a crazy one. For a guy that's 3-0, and like the hype on him is almost too unreal and it feels like it, we're setting him up to fail. But man, I don't know. That's he's scary. He's got an aura to him. I will say I did find it a little bit strange to see the UFC. So the UFC don't sign people like Bo Nickel all that often. Normally the UFC like to go for guys who are the finished article and then give them the big pedestal on, on the main stage. Bo Nickel almost seems a bit like a, a bit like a Bellator fighter. Bellator always like to do this thing where they take like guys who had great wrestling backgrounds or great jujitsu backgrounds and then build Aaron them Pico. up from the ground up. Uh, Aaron Pico being a good example of that one. And mm. it's strange to see the UFC sort of borrowing from the Bellator playbook by doing the same thing with Bo Nickel. But I think, again, as you mentioned before, it's because they think so highly of him. It's weird. I, I remember watching uh, Henry Cejudo. Uh, I think he was like 6-0, 8-0 maybe uh, when he came into the UFC. But I remember watching uh, Henry Cejudo on Access TV, I think it was. It was the same channel for me that had uh, the fantastic show with Boss Rutten and Kenny Rice inside MMA, I think. Fantastic show. But it was on that same channel, and usually they would show like some, like I think it was Titan maybe he was fighting in. Some like 
lower leagues whenever he was just coming out. And they specific he they specifically did not get him until he said, like, okay, I can strike too. Which gold medalist. Uh Bo Nickel isn't a isn't a gold medalist. He was a national champion, but he he wasn't a gold medalist in the Olympics. Um so that's a little that's kind of an interesting point you bring up there. But yeah, the way everybody talks about this guy, like like other like experts. Uh, one thing, actually, I just not thought about this. He does train an American top team. And everyone on American top team says, no, he's the real deal. Like, he's going to do it. I think the big thing that stood out for me watching his MMA career so far is, yes, he's got that wrestling base. And imagine that's what the main sort of, he's going to build his infrastructure around his wrestling. You expect him to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's how quickly he's adapted to the other elements of MMA. Because he won his mm. first fight, it was like a big one-shot knockout, and he's yeah. submitting guys off his the back. Triangle choke. Yeah. He, his grappling is haunting. Like it seems like if you go to the ground with him, call it, just tap out like now, because he's going to get you eventually. It feels like inevitability on the ground with him, which is haunting. But uh, that said, if I'm going to be devil's advocate. Uh, he hasn't had the best competition. So there's that against him. There's a couple of things against him. Like I said, he talks a lot. And I feel like if you talk a lot, uh, especially like if you're talking way up high, I feel like you're kind of setting yourself up to fall, which is not a good feeling a super prospect should have. But man, how everybody talks about him, how the UFC feels about him, clearly main card, uh, debut, 3-0. Um, it's definitely interesting, for sure. There are two sides to the story, however, so we're going to try and devote some time to his opponent. Jimmy Pickett is 13-8 and eight so far, 2-4 uh, and four in the UFC, one of those mm-hmm. being a loss to Jordan Wright in just over a minute, which isn't a good look to have, bearing in mind Jordan Wright's just been released from the UFC. The big thing that stems for me when it comes to Jimmy Pickett is this guy had three appearances on Dana White's Contender Series. So he lost his first appearance. He won his second one, but didn't get a contract. And then finally managed to get one at the third attempt. So the UFC must have seen something in him to give him so many opportunities to get to the big stage. It's I think, I think he was on the Contender Series, the very first one, I think. Um, yeah, he's had a lot of chances... And two and four in the UFC isn't a great record. I, I, I'm i not trying to sound rude here, but he's on a contender series contract. Those are, you're getting paid pennies to the dollar on those contracts, sadly. The contender series contracts are like, you're making seven and seven for four years, almost seems like. Um, so it makes sense that he's still around because of the contender series contract. Two and four, Okay, like uh, the Jordan Wright one, it's like, okay. Mm, like, they probably would have cut him if he didn't have a contender series contract, is what I'm trying to say. But um, he does, and he's still here, and he's got a crazy task in front of him. That said, uh, he's got more experience than I think any of Bo Nichols' opponents, and that goes a long way. Like, if you know what it's like to be in the fire, then 
you kind of know what to deal with and you know what you're about in that kind of situation. And that could be something. And, you know, he's like, he's been around for a good amount of time. He's been like around, like, I mean, like, you know, uh, it wasn't like he went to contender series lost, just sat there waiting. Now he went and like, you know, got some matches in other promotions, came back, tried again, won, came back, tried again. Like, He's been around. He's been like around the world or not around the world, but around the country fighting. I feel like that's like the big thing here for him is the experience. And I think I think that means a lot. I mean, that means a lot to me, at least. Yeah. And being in the UFC, having six fights in there, he's going to understand Mm -hmm. the octagon occasion and the way the bone nickel is, because we always talk about Mm -hmm. a sort of adrenaline dump when a fighter gets into the UFC and the they're charging so hard and desperately want to make a good first impression. And it can, it can get to some people. I think Bo Nickel mm-hmm. has been around the block far too many times that it's going to be an impact. But again, we don't know. The guy's only had three pro fights. Yeah. Uh, I think Cejudo, once again, bringing him up because he's, uh, you know, gold medal Olympic, you know, big name as well. Uh, but Cejudo said that the Olympics and all that are nothing compared to getting in there for like in the UFC, he says it's the lights feel brighter. Everything feels louder. And he knows MMA is a little bit more dangerous than uh, amateur wrestling. So he was like, oh, this is a little something. He said it kind of froze him up a little bit at first. We've seen how Bo Nickel reacts to being the hammer. I think one big question, maybe it's not going to be answered in this fight, but what I would like to see is how he handles being the nail. Because we have seen Mm -hmm. a lot of grapplers who transition into MMA and they've got the skills and attributes to sort of dominate a fight on the ground but a lot of them get thrown off when they can't take a punch like we saw what happened with Pat Downey like Pat Downey yeah Pat Downey didn't have the sort of credentials in the way that Bo Nickel does but he was a pretty credentialed college wrestler himself couldn't take the shots got knocked out in his Bellator debut and got released by the promotion yeah um People might not agree with me on this one, but Brock is who I always think of. Brock took everybody down, beat everybody up, but he kind of turtled up a little bit when he got hit with something good. You know, credit to him in the Shane Carwin fight, but Carwin blew himself, blew his arms out, gassed himself out. And uh, then, like, you know, Kane gets in there. It's constant. This guy isn't going to gas. He's just going to keep hitting you, and you're still turtling up. It's just kind of how it is. And um, there's a couple, like, it does seem like grapplers just because they're not used to it. They're not used to that kind of contact. They're taking it and everything. Um, I would imagine at least. So that is always an interesting dynamic is like, what is it like? Well, how do they, how are they going to be when they're the nail? Cause that, that isn't something that their background prepares them for necessarily. With that being said, I think we're both agreeing Bo Nichols going to win this one. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I hate being. So, I feel like whenever I'm really sure of something, I feel like I'm disrespecting the opponent. I'm not. I'm not trying to at all. Um, but man, I, I, maybe I'm just like a like a mark in wrestling. But that Bo Nickel aura has me. Like I'm like, okay, I got to see it. Um, is he going to be Habib, or is he going to be? I hate saying this one. Ben Askren. Uh, kind of what it feels like uh are you going knockout or submission i think he's going to submit him um i think he can knock him out 
but uh, maybe that's like hope for me. Like I kind of want to see him. I want to see more of his jujitsu. He's a blue belt, but uh, I've been pretty impressed with like his submission grappling. I, I want to see more of it. I I think that's always an interesting aspect. Is uh, you know, like I I, I wish Ronda like literally was shooting doubles and singles using more of her grappling. I, I think adding weapons that complement your previous weapons are always really interesting ideas when you kind of come in with like one, like you're the top in one thing, you know, like Damian Maya, maybe you shouldn't have boxed. Maybe you should have, you know, gone to like a college wrestling room, started single and double legging everybody who could have beaten them then. Right. Kind of idea. So I kind of want to see more of his submission grappling. I, I I've been impressed so far and I want to see more of it. I'm going to go first round submission. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Uh, I think I think he gets his first round submission, and I think they instantly go, okay, how do you feel about Sean Strickland or something like that? They think they're going to pay to him, honestly. Who is Strickland's going to end up the gatekeeper of that weight class, isn't he? Like any sort of rising Man. middleweight, he's going to get Strickland. I At least how I book it. Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I'm, I, I've... No, I don't want to book him against anybody right now. Uh, I had to watch him fight back to back earlier this year. I'm cool for a little bit. Um, the Marvel fight wasn't him too for bad. Stepping up, though. I thought it was okay. No, uh, it, I actually like the um, Jack Hermanson one. There's something wrong with I, Sean Strickland's fine. He's just frustrating to me because I've watched him so many times, and I'm like, dude, can you do something besides jab? Like, come on. Like, it, it's infuriating to me. But he's actually he's he's good and entertaining. Just get getting a little tired of his of his shtick right now. Fight number two is arguably one of the more intriguing ones on the main card. I am really looking forward to this one. It is the number seven seed Matoush Gamrot who's going to be taking on the number ten seed, your boy Jalen Turner. Betting odds for this one have Gamrot as a minus one seventy five favorite. You can get Turner in a plus one fifty. Now Turner was originally going to be facing Dan Hooker. Unfortunately, Hooker gets injured and Gamrock gets a call to replace him on short notice. Um, does that maybe factor into how you think this one's going to play out, potentially Gamrock taking the fight on short notice? Sadly. Um, this fight is so awesome. And I wish Gamrock had a full camp for it because uh, I, I, that's, I, I, I'm very high on the Jalen Turner train. He's in my boys' stable. I'm probably going to graduate him soon, and I want to be. I'm going to be so proud that day. I'm going to be so <laughs> proud to graduate him the second he gets like a title fight or something, or it's like everyone knows who he is. It's like, oh, my boy. All right, like it's it's okay, but um, yeah, um, that's like the big question I have is no one's been able to really take him down. <laughs> uh, like no one's really. He's just so long and lanky. But I go, if anyone's going to get in there, it's like Armand Sarukian, at least around his level. It's like Armand Sarukian, that sound, fight sounds great. Um, I was kind of hoping for something like that. Uh, and Gamrot, like, oh, if he would have beat Dan Hooker, this is a match I would have made. You know, Like, oh, I want to see it. Because the tall, lanky guys, it's a little easier to knock them off balance and get them down to the ground. And Jalen Turner is incredibly tall and lanky. So in my mind, I go, okay, if he can close the distance and get in. He's going to just trip him down. And he does have a good submission grappling. He does have very, it's mostly offensive based. But um, how is he going to, you know, how is he going to keep him off of him? But now with the short notice, I go, okay, now I have to worry about the gas tank as well. 
and it's going to be exhausting getting in there. By the time he gets in there, he might not be able to have that energy and gas tank to take him down. Um, it, it kind of, I don't want to say sours the matchup for me because I'm honestly more pumped for this fight than anything else on the card, but it leaves me almost wanting more, if that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's definitely stylistically very different to Dan Hooker, uh, which I think makes it maybe a bit more intriguing because instead of it being two lanky strikers brawling it out, you've got that wrestler versus grappler dynamic. And also as well from Dan Hooker's perspective, because I like Dan Hooker. I've, I've always had a real affinity for him. Yeah. I haven't enjoyed Dan Hooker being used as this sort of litmus test for upcoming lightweights. He was sort of falling into sort of like the Derek Brunson, Neil Magny role a little bit. And I think Dan Hooker deserves a little bit better than that. But also as well, I was looking through Jalen Turner's UFC victories. He's had six of them so far. Four of them have come against Australian opponents. It was Callum Potter, Jamie Malarkey, Brad Liddell and uh, Josh Kulabau. So four Australian yeah. fighters. Dan Hooker was going to be number five. And like some people down under would be thinking, God, what does this guy have against us? <laughs> They're nice people. In my day job, I actually work with a lot of people from uh, Australia. They're all great. They're fantastic. Uh, that's rough, having Jalen Turner hunting them down and stalking them, apparently. <laughs> they, well, it's a good thing Volkanovski didn't win at 284. He would have been next. I... I, I it could have been it. That would have been like the prime graduation moment, like your final hunt. Like, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Gamrot, though. So 21-2 record, uh, two-way champion with KSW, which I think is one of the most underrated promotions in the world right now. Uh, two-time Easily. ADCC European champion. So we know his grappling is up there. Uh, there were a lot of people wondering how Gamrot would handle the jump from KSW to the UFC. I think on the whole, he's passed it. Yes, the Benil Darius result didn't go his way, but he gave Darius a few problems, especially early on in that fight. Yeah, he lost the first, his first his debut in the UFC, right? Uh, yeah, he lost and to then, uh, after that, he... Oh, That's crazy. Yeah. And then he just started rattling them off. Just one after the other. You know, he and put on, in my opinion, well. a fight of Holtzman, the year. Stevens, Ferreira, Sarukian. Very good, oh, very yeah. good oh, The Fajeda one is insane. That's when, because like when he did the Stevens one, I was like, oh, Stevens is kind of, I hate saying this, I used to really like Stevens in my boy stable forever. But um, like, ah, oh, Stevens is kind of washed, you know, great Kimura though. And then he got, um, it was the Carlos Diego Fajeda one. And I went, okay, that's a really nice feather in this cap. I got to see where this goes. And then the Sarukian one, that was a fight of the year contender for me last year fantastic fight i loved it um just wow what a good fight just thinking about it now um but honestly the dariush fight we were talking about that fight you know on the pre uh, on the previous show not that long ago we were both talking like dude this fight is insane like this fight's gonna be great and it was great you know dariush is just kind of white hot and seemingly on a collision course with makachev but uh Gamrod had some good moments of success there. He wasn't completely outclassed until like the last round. That's when I kind of felt like he was in a class, but um, no, he was sticking in there, doing well, great scrambles, which is what, I mean, that ADCC European title is uh, 
I've heard I've heard I've seen some people say that like oh it's European though I'm like no that's still a great feather in your cap Europe has a lot of great grapplers they're known for their strikers but their grapplers are really good you know Gun- Gunny Nelson you know I put it this way being a European ADCC champion it's it's much it has much more merit than being Finland's greatest surfer. <laughs> I, I saw it specifically described as being uh, the the best soccer player in America. And I went, I don't think it's like that at all. Um, I, I I think it's a little bit higher up. I'd say it'd be like being... Uh, <laughs> I'll think of one. But it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty nice accolade, I think. And, um, I mean, obviously he's proven it. Like, he's a very, very good grappler. And his striking has improved, like, really well. Like, he's not just a competent striker. He's a pretty good striker. He can handle himself. He doesn't seem like he's, like, out of depth. You know, it isn't like the Damian Maya days where it's like, okay, he can't get the single leg. He can't pull guard. I guess we're just here, you know, existing. I think it's big, like, no, like, he's fine. I think the big thing I've noticed with Gamrot striking is, Normally, he would sit behind the jab and then use that to set up his takedowns. But what we're seeing a lot more, especially with the Scott Holtzman fight, he's willing to sit mm-hmm. down on his punches in a way that he wouldn't do early on in his career. Yeah, he's got that oomph now. Yeah. Because like, I, I don't think he had really a ton of... I never really saw when he was in KSW. I never really saw him putting on like crazy, you know, just boom kind of shots. But no, he, he has a good pop to him. You know, he's got some power, uh, not a ton. He's not like a Dariush who is who feels like nowadays is swinging a sledgehammer for a left hand. Like if that thing hits, OK, I'm I'm getting knocked to the floor just from the force of it landing. Who knows if I'm conscious or not? And um, but no, he's got some pop and he's quick. He's very quick. Uh, once again, I can't praise this fight enough. His fight with Sarukian, it is like I Watching that fight for the Dariush uh, preview show was like, did someone t- put times two speed on? They are so quick in that fight, and they're lightweights. Like, which for me is like the middle is almost like the middle ground of uh, like attributes on the scale. You know, it, it's like it's not like flyweight or bantamweight, but they were so fast for lightweight. It was awesome, and it's very scrappy too, which I I love that quality. Like this fight. I wish I, oh God, I, I can't stress enough. I really wish he had a full camp for this. Oh, this fight would have been like the chef's kiss for fights for me. But I'm very happy we're getting it regardless. I'm interested to see how Gamrot's pace works against someone like Jalen Turner because one of the big things that stands out for me with Jalen is firstly, the guy has fantastic fight IQ. We saw that when he fought Uros Medic because he rocks Medic and saw like the fight finishing sweet sequence. He rocks him to start off with. And normally you would expect people to think, oh, I've got him on the ropes here. Try and target the head to finish him off. And yet still, he's taking his time. Mm. He's firing body shots, not rushing things, and eventually ends up getting them out there. So we've got a very smart fighter and a very... I wouldn't say he he lacks urgency, but he's not going to rush his sort of work. And I'm going to be interested to see how that contrasts with a guy like Gamrot who can mix things up, can make things sort of like a scrappy, uh, scrambling-based match. It's going to be very interesting to see, and especially as well, uh, considering Turner's so long. Yeah, he's... 
I think the tallest lightweight they've ever, or I don't know if he beat Corey Hill, rest in peace, but Corey Hill, I think was the tallest lightweight ever. It's like six, three. I think he was at like six, three, but Turner is at least the tallest current guy and uh, very methodical. Uh, I tried not to laugh because my brain went to, he's uh, uh, like a cerebral assassin of sorts, like try. And um, I don't like what try said. I don't like what try said. <laughs> like try, reminds me a lot of try out there. And uh, if anyone gets that reference in um, the comments, cult, yeah. let me know and I will cash it. Yeah, a can of Coke. I'll even cash app you a dollar if you want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, um, what uh, he's like, I think of the Riddell fight, he hurts him. He doesn't rush in. He just kind of sits there and he throws more straight, throws more straights and more like setup straight, like a, like a jab to step in and then like another power straight. And then he gets the knockdown and he doesn't just like come in, you know, hammer fisting away, you know, potentially blowing all the lactic acid out of his arms. Get, like, you know, I mentioned it earlier, the Shane Carwin, Brock Lesnar situation. He gets on top, lands good shots that could finish the fight, takes the back chokes him out. Or he got a guillotine, I believe. Yeah, it was a guillotine. But um, he the thing about it, too, is I just thought of this. Uh, I feel like he learns a lot from every fight, mm-hmm. at least every, maybe just defeats, but from every fight I can think of, because my introduction to Jalen Turner and uh, once again, uh, plugging the retro review series, actually I talked about it was uh, his fight with Vicente Luque, where Vicente Luque was like a hot prospect, you know, kind of an unknown, but like, if you knew, you knew like he was a, you know, the, the silent, uh, the silent killer in that division for a little bit. And, um, he was doing great. Like it was a very back and forth competitive striking match. And then he throws just a, a random, not really well set up spinning elbow gets caught while throwing it gets knocked down and gets finished. And he no more of that really. Like he's not, he's very much more patient and cerebral and methodical is uh, the best words for it. So it, it seems like he's improving rapidly with almost every fight or at least like adding a significant jump with everyone. And I'm glad you brought that up as well, because one of the losses that Jalen Turner has on his record was against Mafavola. And Mafavola, like Gamrot, mm-hmm. is primarily a grappling-based fighter. So has Jalen Turner learned some of those mistakes that he made against the Favola fight, maybe not being as urgent enough as he ideally should have been to get out of these tricky situations Favola was putting himself into? Is he going to learn from that mm. when it comes to fighting Gamrot? That's the big question. Like I said, it's, we talked about this with the Volkanovsky thing. Low center of gravity, it's hard to take a short guy down. Um, you know, until you get in the clinch, then I was always getting tossed. Uh, I was getting tossed over my head, Kurt Angle style, felt like. But the tall guy, it's a little easier to get him down. Because, you know, like it's a little easy. It just feels like it's easier to knock them off balance. You know, I'm not trying to stereotype tall guys, but it always felt like that. You know, and the tall, lanky, skinny built guys, you know, obviously there's some tall guys that are just solid, but um, he's more of a lankier, uh, skinnier frame to him. And it always feels like it's just easier to get him down. I think of uh, like Michael, it's on, it was on Tough Live, underrated season. Uh, but um, Michael Chiesa, 
got James Vick down pretty easily. And much taller James Vick just kind of got him down relatively easily. And uh, from there, he just kind of punished him. And I'm not saying that's how the fight is going to go, but I feel like that is definitely a thing with a guy of Gamrot's uh, grappling caliber and wrestling caliber. So put your money where your mouth is. Who's winning this one? I have Jalen Turner winning in the second round by a finish. That's a big call. I Gamrot think has never he... been finished. Yeah, I think th- I think what's going to do it is I, I, I'm a sucker for this. If you want to get in my boy stable, you got to be snap kicking. I want to see the snap kicks up the middle. And he, Jalen Turner, has a great snap kick up the middle. Uh, he also switches stances, but and I love that too. But uh, I, I could see him sniping with straights and snap kicks up the middle. Those snap kicks are going to drain, can drain the cardio of Gamrot, which is already a little worsened, sadly, because of the short notice. Um, I think he's going to just kind of sap the energy out of him, keep him at range, make it hard for him to close the di- – like I, I, almost in a way of the John Jones-Daniel Cormier two fight where Jones made Daniel Cormier just kind of wade through all these kicks to kind of at least get as much punishment as he could on you until you finally close the distance. I could see an, an evolution of that, which is kind of what we see more from taller, lankier guys, where it's – you might get in eventually, but I'm going to make it really hard and I'm going to lay a bunch of – like do a ton of damage with straight shots down the middle on you and uh, to keep you out. I could see Turner doing this. I could see it just – adding up over time and when he hits you he it does i i've heard people say that like turner doesn't have the one shot ko it's more like he knocks you on he knocks you pretty senseless and you're up and you're just barely staying up and then he just kind of methodically gets you down i think if he was putting much more oomph on it he's probably putting you out but he'd rather land consistently than land like you know haymaker number you know saturday night special over here um and I, and I want to stress, I want to add the caveat. If this was on a full fight camp, I don't know if I would go with this prediction. But um, maybe it's the fan in me. But I, I think Jalen Turner by decision or by, by finish in the second round. I'm going to be picking uh, Turner as well. And normally I do like to favor the grappler mm. over the striker. But I'm favoring Turner for a couple mm. of reasons. I think that... I think Gamrot is a very, very good grappler. But I don't think that he's... You mentioned before that you want to see these sort of jujitsu-based guys sort of incorporating the double legs and the single legs to get the takedowns. I don't think Gamrot's double leg is the greatest to be able to get Turner down. I think the Turner's frame is going to be very hard for him to control. And we talk about Turner's size Mm. being a big factor for him. I think Gamrot's one of the smaller lightweights on the roster. So what you got basically is a guy, ideally a 150-pounder, taking on a guy who should be fighting the 170. Yeah. yeah. It won't be like... Yeah, because I, I, he, when he was a champ in KSW, he was at 145 and 155. Yeah. Um, he moved up to 155, kind of a Volkanovski situation with him. Because I think he's like 5'6". He's my height, you know? So he's short. Yeah. Short. So now I kind of want to change it to give short guys some love, but nah, you know, I'm sticking with Turner. 
Uh, one final note before we move on to the next fight, though. I, I think if Gamrot was to get it done, now this is a bit of a hot take. I think it might be worth trying to attack the legs. Gamrot has a very good heel hook. And those legs on Jalen Turner are going to be very vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Um, I think attacking the legs, because Turner's got good movement. Like, he sometimes will stand and just counter when you press in on him. But sometimes he'll just kind of, you know, kind of skate on out of there. I think attacking the legs with kicks. And then if you do get him down, uh, those limbs are ripe. Because he's got long arms, long legs. And... But the heel hook of Gamrod is definitely a great call because uh, just chill up my spine just thinking of heel hooks. Oh, oh leg locks are the worst um, in the best way possible. I'm going to uh, chill up. I'm going to chill up my spine as well because of these short sleeve shirts. I'm wearing my Newcastle uh, shirt for the uh, <laughs> big game which is taking place on Sunday. So fingers crossed from Newcastle's perspective, we can win this one. But very airy as well. Not designed to be sitting into a cold um, English room, I'll put it that way. Yeah, it's below freezing here right now. Or, no, it just went above freezing, uh, according to my computer. But it has been freezing cold here. Uh, I hate it. I I don't I don't like it at all. I, I hate the cold. <laughs> Fight number three, we're going back to the welterweight division now. And it is the number seven seed, Jeff Neal, taking on Luke Thomas's favorite fighter, Shavkat Rachmanov. Now, Shavkat enters this fight as a minus 525 favorite. You can get Jeff Neal plus 325. Now, if you have been watching MK or you follow Luke Thomas's channel, you'll know that he is very, very high on this guy. And there's a lot of mm -hmm. hardcore fans as well who think, oh, stuff all this hype about Hamzat, Shavkat is the real sort of next big thing in the welterweight division. So for people who might not know about this guy, because this is his pay-per-view main card appearance, what is it about Shavkat Rachmanov, which is getting so many people excited? He is unbeaten and a superstar finisher. And, and whenever I tell people this, I see them fight, because once again, pay-per-view, I have friends that only, some friends that only watch pay-per-views. I go, okay, this guy, he finishes everybody, and uh, he's unbeaten. Okay, how does he do it? Is he, is he like a striker? Is he a grappler? No, he's everything. Like, he, he can do anything in there. Um, if he wants to strike with you, he's probably knocking you down and knocking you out. Or he's knocking you down and submitting you. If he wants to take you down, he's taking you down, ground and pounding you out, or he's choking you out. He is going to go in there and do what he thinks is the best plan to victory. And he's going to finish you is kind of like his MO, at least up until this point. Um, and, one, and I will say this. I am also of the train of, no, this guy's the real deal. But it, it is always very nice to find a, an incredibly talented like prospect that no one's talking about. And that does elevate him, I think gives him an illusion of like maybe he's like a nine out of ten fighter, but it could give someone the illusion that they're a ten out of ten because you know it's like that weird hipster thing we want to be the first one on the scene kind of thing that uh, humans have uh but that said i am also incredibly high on this guy he seems to be the total package so he's going to be fighting yoko zuna at SummerSlam. <laughs> yeah uh he was a narcissus was his original gimmick yeah, touring America in the big Bobby bus, the, the Shavkat Express. 
Yes. Yeah. Hiding that old mirror when he used to walk out and pose <laughs> in front of it. You know? <laughs> I'd also like to reiterate some things about Shotcut as well. So we've got a 16 and 0 record here. And of those 16 mm. and 0, 8 knockouts, 8 submissions, 0 decisions. It's like a video game career mode I would do. Like, he just does everything. Very talented. I think the big things that stand out for me when it comes to a shaft card, I've got a couple of notes here. It's not so much that he mm -hmm. hits with a lot of power, but it's the accuracy. Like, he knows what shot to throw at what time and from what angle. And maybe it sort of compensates for not having that sort of one-shot KO that you sort of come to mm -hmm. expect from, like, a big, highly regarded prospect. It's more how he throws rather than how hard he hits. Um, he can throw in some flash if needed. We saw that when he fought Carlson Harris, spinning back kick knockout. And I agree with Luke Thomas. I think one of his biggest fortes is his ground and pound. Like, this is mm. vicious stuff. And again, accurate. He, like, he cut, so, I, I hate drawing the comparisons between the two fighters, but I feel like it's unavoidable because of their status records and similarities. But uh, Hamzat and him, I think of Hamzat more of like a strength. Like if it's like one kind of thing, but he Hamzat can also, in my opinion, do everything. I think he's a very good striker, clearly like superstar grappler and wrestler, but he has a lot of power, a lot of strength. It's a lot of him flinging you, throwing you um, kind of things. And then just crank one shot, KO kind of ability with Shavkat, it feels much more finesse based. I'm not saying in terms of like speed, but in terms of like accuracy, uh, you know, if Hamzat is like a shotgun, Shavkat is a, like a sniper rifle. I guess you could kind of, you could say. Someone made this comparison. Now I'm going to very British here. There was a show called Scrap Heap Challenge <laughs> and they had to build a car crushing <laughs> machine. And one team builds this hydraulic press to sort of like squash the car down. And the other team says, oh, we're just going to build a big hammer. Shafkat is the hydraulic press <laughs> and Hamzat is the hammer. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. Uh, I just want when to put in the challenge thought, reference. You... I, when you said British reference, I expected you to say that they're both just innocent men, just normal <laughs> men. That's been making the rounds lately. And <laughs> um, I, I think if I was to say something about Shavkat, like what, what do I think is the number one thing that just like, you know, why are you like, I, I kind of have a, like a little bit of a love hate with him. Cause I go, I love him. I love everything about him, but he's too respected to put into the boy stable. <sighs> but uh, he, uh, I think it's fight IQ. Like he, I, uh, I watched a guy do like a career highlight of him. And I went, I saw a fight where he got knocked down like pretty bad. Like I think at the end of the first round, he got knocked down and I went, let me see what happened there. And I looked and he won the fight. I think he TKO'd him in the second round, but he made, uh, looking back and like trying to find videos of it. I couldn't find videos of it, but I found a guy talk about it, how he's like, Oh, he made a really good adjustment here. Got the guy down. And I went, huh? And then I saw another video where this guy was like, it seems like he just kind of watches you and analyzes you and then goes, all right, that's how I'm finishing you. 
And I thought about it and I went, yeah, that's 100% true. Like he has just unbelievable fight IQ. So in the fight where he won with a spinning back kick, uh, his opponent is anytime like he he'll throw a left hook and then he'll circle to the like the left or Shopcott's left side, his right side. He circles that way. So he comes in to step in to draw the left check hook and then he spins knowing he's going to circle and that's how he catches him clean. He moves into it. He kind of set him up for it after getting that read. So it seems like he's making just these unbelievable mid-fight adjustments. He's capitalizing on whatever adjustment he makes to create a hole, capitalizes on the hole he makes, and then he gets the finish. And the other thing about it is I love that he, he, we talked about this with Neil Magny, where his biggest strength is his biggest weakness, that he isn't great anywhere. He's just, like, he's really good everywhere. He doesn't have one kind of, like, specialization. That's what at least it seems like. You know, when you're split down the middle and finishes eight and eight, you know, uh, it's definitely definitely seeming like that. Um, but I, I feel like I, I almost don't look at it in the Neil Magny sense. I look at it more as uh, he, he can just do it how he wants, in a sense. We are going to talk a little sense. bit about um, his opponent, though, because this is a two-way street after all. And we're going to talk about Jeff Neal, 15-4 and four record. Now, Jeff Neal himself had a bit of a hype train when it came to the welterweight division. He got himself that um, fight night made event up against Wonderboy. Unfortunately, he didn't go his way. And I think a couple of lackluster performances after that, and people thought, Jeff Neal's maybe reached his ceiling here. Mm. And then the Vincent Luque ha- fight happens. He becomes the first man to finish Vincent Luque, who was always celebrated for the quality of his chin. And now you've got a guy who... I think a lot of people are starting to think, yeah, you know what, Jeff Neal maybe is a little bit better than getting, what, 50-45 by Wonderboy. You look at some of yeah. his notable wins, you've got Luke here on there, Ponzinibbio, Mike Perry, Nico Price. He was the last man to beat Bilal Muhammad, which is a real feather in your cap. So I think Jeff Neal's still got something about him. I think whether he can get higher than number seven in the rankings, I'm not 100% sure, but... We've got a good fighter here, and we've got a real litmus test for how good Shafkat is. Absolutely. Like, um, people, like, at this point with Shafkat, it's, uh, he's, he's not getting, like, preferential treatment like the other one, Hamzat, is. So every fight from now on for Shafkat is going to be, like, okay, this is a litmus test. This is a litmus test. Like, he's, it's, it's just up from here, right? It's just going to get harder and harder. And Jeff Neal is a really good one start off here um even though he did lose to shavkat's last opponent neil magny i don't think mma math doesn't work like that so at the end of the day uh jeff neil like the hype on him was huge like he he knocked out mike perry back when mike perry was you know like very mike perry underrated fighter honestly like there was a time where whenever he had an actual camp behind him where he was very technical, very scary, and had a game plan that he could, if he followed it, that's up to him. But if he followed it, he's probably winning because very talented. And then Jeff Neal just goes up there, tags him, then high kicks him and crow cops him, basically. Am I right in saying and, he's the only guy to finish Mike Perry? 
Uh, I think so. No, um, well, Cowboy armbarred him. Oh, of course, yeah. Well, knock him yeah, out. Yeah, but I think knock him out. Yeah, I think knock him out. You know, and uh, that mean that was an eye opener for me. I was like, whoa. And then he had the uh, Wonder Boy fight, which I think that's probably the worst game plan I've ever seen. Like against Wonder Boy, let's headhunt against Wonder Boy. You know, no, no attacking the legs or the body. I think there's a statistic where it was like 98% of his strikes went to his like worse headhunting. I'm like, oh man. Like, why did you? I don't know why he thought he could do that against Wonder Boy, when you know it's attacking the legs and the body is how you deal with him on the feet if you want to stay there at least, you know. But uh, he then he like lost like a, a decision to Neil Magny and then like the, everything kind of cools down. But then he it was Ponzinibbio he beat, I believe, and then he beat obviously Vicente Luque, which is huge. Vicente Luque, I he was getting a title shot if he beat Bilal Muhammad. If he beat him, he was getting a title shot. A finisher, okay, like yeah, you're in, you know. And he and he had the accolades to do it, like to warrant it as well. And he goes in there and knocks him out, the first guy to do it, first guy to finish him, and made it look pretty easy. It was kind of haunting for me. I'm a big Luque fan. I was like, and I like Jeff Neal as well. And I went, oh. You know, I got to like him. Apparently we're related. We have the same last name. That's how it works. That's how it works. Right. You know, uh, spelled the same way too, which is, which is a trip. But, um, I mean, I think Jeff Neal has a really interesting kind of style against Shavkat. I think, I, I think this fight is much more interesting than like, I feel like a lot of people are kind of, I feel like a lot of people have already kind of going, well, Shavkat, he's the next big thing. So he's just going to win. Right. Um, I think this fight's a little bit, a little bit more than that because Jeff Neal, uh, if he has, he kind of does uh, a head hunty version of the Crow Cop special, which Crow Cop in Pride was his big, his big three weapons were the left straight, the left high kick, and the left body kick because it's the s- same shoulder motion, and each one opens up the path for the other one if your opponent's defending it. So he's throwing a left straight then high kicking a lot, but he's got a good, you know, lead right hand, but his left hand feels like a piece of concrete. Like, uh, Oh, I forget the name is, I think it was Marquez that fought Manny Pacquiao in boxing or no, he fought, um, um, Miguel Cotto and he had plaster in his wraps. It feels like that. Like he, when he hits guys, it, you can almost hear it. He's got a ton of power. And Shavkat has not been the, we mentioned this earlier. You mentioned this earlier. Shavkat has not been really the nail, except for like, maybe it seems like once or twice in his career and he recovered. He did well, but it's a little different when someone has like Jeff Neal kind of power, that thing kind of changes, you know, can change you a little bit. You get hit, you panic, then you make mistakes, then you get finished. We've seen it a thousand times in our sport. That is a definite, definite possibility when someone has that kind of power. I'm also interested to see how Jeff Neal, what sort of lessons Jeff Neal took from the Wonderboy fight because um, the big mistake I felt that Jeff Neal made, you sort of brought up one trying to headhunt, but he also mm. has a very high output style. And of mm. course, as we know, the more output you have, the more chance that your opponent has to counter. And Wonderboy yeah. was able to do that because we know how good, how fast Wonderboy can be in reading somebody and then coming in with a quick leg kick or quick counter right to sort of stumble you a bit 
Mm-hmm. You bear that in mind with Sharfkart, who is also a great counter-striker, guy who knows how to use angles in a similar way to how Wonderboy does. That's mm-hmm. a recipe for disaster for Jeff Neal, unless he's taken on board some of the lessons. So it's possible we could see a bit of a low output fight. I I think that's definitely I think against Ponzinibbio it was a little bit lower. It turned up at one point. Like I remember it cranking up. But if I remember correctly, I think he was a little bit more muted. I know against Neil Magny he was, but Neil Magny wore him out. Like like he does everybody. Like that guy takes your gas tank and laughs at it and then crushes it in front of you. So that's a little understandable in that one. But um, I think he's going to try and walk down Shavkat. I think he's going to be the one leading the dance uh, and wanting to take the fight to him, especially with how he's talking. Like, I don't like to look into how much, like, not necessarily a trash talk of a fighter, but he's kind of been like, you know, they say he's the man. I'm going to make him show me. And that, to me, kind of implies that his game plan is, I'm going to walk him down and sh- show me that you're the, you're the next big thing. I'll prove it to me, kind of mindset. And this fight's actually really good. Uh, this card's pretty good, but I, hmm, this was this was actually one of the harder ones for me to pick. I'll be honest. It's definitely interesting for sure. I'm going to pick Shafkat to win this one, but I think it goes the distance. I think Jeff Neal is tough enough that he's able to avoid any of. So like the big Shafkat offense. I think I could see Shafkat hurting him, but I think Jeff Neal's going to power through that. And I think it's going to go the full 15 minutes with Shafkat winning. And then mm-hmm. we get to the interesting situation if Shafkat was to win, because he would probably move to number six, number seven in the rankings. And now he's getting to the guys who a lot of people call welterweight the diva division. <laughs> so it's like, who do you put him yeah. against? Do you put him against... Colby's not going to want to fight him. Bilal's going to wait around for his title fight. We don't know what's going to happen with Usman and Edwards. So the matchmaking after that, assuming Shafkat wins, or even if Jeff Neal wins, because Jeff Neal's going to get all of that buzz if he was able yeah. to beat Shafkat. They start entering that sort of domain, which has been such a problem for the UFC recently. Welterweight could be my favorite division right now. Uh, if I just like cut out the top five, six guys, because it is so frustrating seeing guys like Colby Covington waste away their primes by just, no, nah, I'm not going to fight. Or guys like, you know, I, I was, I don't think, you know, I understand the idea of like, oh, it was a last second comeback from behind, you know, win for Leon Edwards. I didn't want a rematch. I, I just want to see something new, you know, in the division. So, uh, I was a little disappointed to see that. And then Billy Muhammad isn't going to risk his title, potential title fight into it. And it's like, okay, well, who is actually here willing to fight anybody? Gilbert. It's like, that's the, yeah, that's the only guy. And they're giving him Masvidal, who I think he's going to beat. But it's like, man, are we really going to do Gilbert against another unbeaten super prospect? Like, like, man, this guy's like, that. Get part of the job, I guess. And that's another like wrench in this plan. If what if they let that guy, that dummy, come back down to 170? Like, I think that guy deserves a title shot from the Gilbert fight, if I'm being honest. But, you know, it's like, is he gonna even make weight? Now we have to deal with that whole catastrophe potentially. Like, man, Welterweight gets crowded at the top. I think but, he's coming I mean, I guess... to 185. 
Yeah, I know he wants the Pajeda fight. Uh, oh, that sounds fun. Bo Nickel, if he wins in Hamza, that'd be kind of fun. Uh, Bo Nickel's but, already called him out. Yeah, that sounds great. It sounds, yeah, I remember Bo Nickel saying, I'll take Hamza too. I'm like, oh, dude. Oh, uh, I. I'm responded I don't by like... shouting, I smash. Yeah, that's probably. That's all he can yeah. say. I, I still think my best friend had the perfect, like, description of Hamza. He doesn't, he's not a, he's not a native English speaker. So he knows like three, four words and he just kind of, you know, jumbles them around. And there you go. Um, I like, to, I like but, to think he did what uh, happened on Dexter's lab. You know, when Dexter. Oh, um, yeah. Omelet du fromage. du fromage. And it's just ice mesh yes. everyone. Yeah, that's 100% what it is. He, his record player uh, broke and just kept doing the same thing. Uh, it, it, was, it broke on his, uh, on his Hulk comic book that he had on audio. But I, I, for the record, I don't really like the guy at all. But that dude is incredible, I think, as a fighter. So, like, ah, man, if he comes back down, it's like, okay. Um, that said, I, do, I would love a Shavkat Hamzat fight. But, I mean, it's going to get crowded. Like, this division just – because no one wants to move anything – at the upper echelon. So we move on to our core main event. There has been a little bit of movement in this division recently. It is Valentina Shevchenko who is defending her title for the seventh time. Um, and she's going to be taking on Alexa Grasso, the number six seed. Betting odds for this one are very interesting. Shevchenko is a minus 650 favorite, which is actually a little bit lower than what she has been over the past couple of fights. You can get Alexa Grasso at plus 425. Uh, now, Shevchenko already holds the record for the most successive title defenses in women's MMA. So she broke Ronda's record by beating Tyler Santos. The big question is, though, should she have beaten Tyler Santos? This was a very divisive fight when it first happened. You personally scored it for Tyler when it first happened, Joe. Where do you stand this time? Uh, I think about that decision a lot. I think Talia Santos won it. And I'm going to double up on this by saying this. If, Tal- if, if you think Valentina Shevchenko won it, well, uh, then by that logic, they're going to pick the round. I forgot which one it was, where she's throwing her punches back and, you know, uh, <clears throat> and Santos just kind of holding on to her from back control. If that's the case, then Volkanovsky won round four. Uh, but that said, I think. Volkanovski won that fight anyways, and I think Talia Santos won uh, that fight. I thought she controlled her. She kind of manhandled her on the ground a little bit for the most part, and she did it with one eye. I think it was a – was it an eye poke or a headbutt, I believe? That – I think it was a headbutt that, like, caused – like, the most significant thing of the fight Valentina did was foul her opponent. And – we, we don't judge fights like Pride, where it's we judge we don't judge the whole thing. We judge round by round. Uh, even then, I thought Talia Santos had the rounds. I thought she had the the biggest moments. Had a lot of control. Had a lot of dominant positions. I I, I don't I don't know. That was a that was in my top three of like worst decisions last year. I personally lean towards Shevchenko, but I can definitely see an argument to Tyler Santos. And mm-hmm. I know we don't, it's might come across a little bit egotistical when you sort of pat yourself on the back. But we did say in going into that preview show, we said Tyler Santos was a lot better than people realized. And Shevchenko at 34 
with, what, 20 years of fighting experience, bearing in mind Muay Thai and MMA, she is starting to slow down a little bit. And I think those culminated in a fight that was a lot closer than people expected. And I've said this for a long time, women's flyweight has slowly been getting a lot better and we're starting to see that sort of, that new crop of fighters coming to the fore and it's benefiting everyone. I think women's flyweight has been very good recently. Well, that was my, that was my first preview show. It was awesome. But this, when we said it, this division is going to get good really soon. And here we are, you know, we, I think we've earned applause. I think we've earned all that because here we are. This division's interesting and exciting because here's something we this division did not have for a long time. It was who do, who do we give a title shot to? And there's multiple people who have cases for it. Like this division didn't have that like a year or so ago. When Talia Santos got the title shot, we were like, okay, sure. When Jennifer Maya got it, sure. Jessica I, Caitlin Chukagian, we were all just like, all right, fine, whatever. Uh, and now we, you and me both were like, oh. You know, I'm an Alexa Grasso fan, but I was like, oh, I think Manon Faro should should get this fight. And you said that. And I've heard people say Grasso should have got it. You know, and now if this fight wasn't happening right now, you could toss Aaron Blanchfield in here, too. And it's like that's that's signs of a good division when you have kind of discourse of oh, what do we do with all these guys, all these people like Talia Santos could have got the immediate rematch. That's four names, you know, the four horsewomen like coming at it like. You know, it's that's exciting. This division, it's, you know, got intrigued to it. And the most important part, the fights are pretty good. Yeah, I think I think definitely Flyweight has got a lot better. But Shevchenko is still queen of the division right now. And let's talk mm-hmm. about some of the reasons why she has done so. You look at some of the notable wins she's had on the record, not just Tyler Santos, mm-hmm. but during her title defense, we've had Jessica Vai, Liz Carmouche, Caitlin Tukasian, Jennifer Meyer. Jessica Andrade, which in my opinion is her best ever performance because she absolutely dominated Andrade where many people thought Andrade would have the best chance of winning. Lauren Murphy as well. And then when you go up to Bantamweight, you've got Holly Holm, Juliana Pena, Sarah Kaufman. So she's been like a who's who of some great female fighters. And Mm. for me, what she's done it with is fantastic use of distance and angles Counter-striking is up there with some of the very best man or woman. You do sometimes wonder how effective those are, given that she's now 34, slowing down a little bit. But she's worthy of a lot of the praise, even if she's maybe not the fighter she was, say, 2020, 2011. Mm-hmm. 2021, as she said, 2021. Yeah. Uh, I, she's... I, I don't... It could be recency bias, you know? In the sport, we've we've often talked about how, uh, like, it seems like the majority of fans and pundits don't really care too much about history uh, in the sport when it's like, you know, we, we kind of need, it's an important part. Um, Forrest Griffin once said, this is uh, 110% a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sport. You know, uh, you're only as good as your last fight kind of thing. So it could be recency bias because I was not impressed really all that much with her in the... Talia Santos fight. I was, I mean, obviously the big story of that fight is like, wow, Talia Santos really overperformed than we were, any of us were expecting. You know, I think, I think us, we gave her like, oh no, she's like deserves a title shot X, Y, and Z. But I don't think either one of us really considered her making it that close because we both picked Valentina to win. 
And it was like, oh, like you didn't just make it close. You made it controversially close. You kind of thing. And um, so part of me wants to say she's slowing down. But on the other hand, I go, uh, she's still, you know, like the boogie woman, uh, the queen of that division, you know. So I don't I don't know if I don't know if it's safe to say she's slowed down just yet. We're going to talk a little bit about Alexa Grasso now. So we've got a 15 and three record. Um, all three of those losses coming at straw weight. So it's interesting to note that she's never lost as a flyweight. Her last win came on a fight night main event, which was up against Viviani Araujo. I thought pretty solid fight. Not something to write home about, but trust me, I've seen worse fight night main events than that. Uh, notable wins during this run have included Vivi, uh, Joanne Caldwood, who I feel like every title challenger needs to beat before they get that title fight. <laughs> so look out for Luana Carolina. She's going to be wanting to win that one because she'll probably get it next. Uh, Macy Barber, she also beat. And if you go up to Strawwick, you've got Carolina and Randa Marcos. So some pretty solid names mm -hmm. there. Um, big thing that stands out when it comes to Alexa Grasso, though, not a dynamic finisher. Of those 15 wins, 10 have come by decision. Four KOs, her last KO win coming in 2014 in Invicta, and just the one mm -hmm. submission. So if Alex Cross is going to get it done, it's going to be over 25 minutes. Absolutely. She has a crazy statistic before the UFC. I think, like, no fight went over, like, 40-plus seconds or something like that. Like, her first couple of fights were only, like, 40-plus seconds. And so that gives the impression, if you look at just that, those fights, you go, oh, she's got, like, like, Francis Ngannou kind of power. No, uh, funny enough, she just pieces you apart for over time, and she has the gas tank to, to make it happen. Um, I think her boxing is up there as probably her biggest strength. I think, um, as we've seen with a lot of Mexican fighters recently, they always have great boxing fundamentals, so I see Grasso wanting to try and utilize that. That is going to be quite hard, though, because we know Shevchenko's use of distance management is always up there as very well so mm -hmm. if Grasso's going to try and get into sort of boxing range she's going to be eating a lot of kicks to do so and I think that was something that undid Jessica Rye because Jessica Rye was trying to charge in to get into boxing range and Shevchenko was just piecing her apart with body kicks um one thing I would say about Alexa Grasso which I think a lot of people like to overlook we like to frame her just as purely a boxer purely a striker I think she has really good scrambling ability. And that was something yeah. that caused Shevchenko a lot of problems. Because if you go back and you watch the Tyler Santos fight, Shevchenko was the one instigating the takedowns. But mm -hmm. when it got to that second stage where you're trying to secure position, that's when Tyler was able to sort of reverse, use her power, and end up on top. Can I see Alexa Grasso maybe doing that? Because her scrambling ability is quite good. It's possible. But I think she needs to work a lot more on her strength because that was a big that was a big forte Tyler Santos had in that fight. And my one concern with Alexa Grasso is even though she is a good scrambler and we know that her striking is very good, is she physically strong enough to handle Shevchenko? And I I doubt that she is. I'm I feel like you're reading off my notes here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, man, this is, I feel like I'm being tortured having to preview this one. Um, but yeah, if I were to play devil's advocate here, 
I think Alexa Grosso has pretty underrated footwork through boxing. Um, specifically, like, on her defensive footwork seems very good. Like, Vivi tried to get in multiple times and just, nope. <laughs> no, I'm just going to bounce around, jab you up, straight you up, and land a nice counter when I can. Macy Barber was kind of plotting in and just got eaten to shreds for two, for like two and a half rounds. And uh, I, I think like if I was to question something here, uh, I, I also think her kicks are a little underrated, and it does seem like she is trying to improve her jiu-jitsu game and her grappling game, because I think her grappling game is actually improved leaps and bounds. Like, uh, her takedown was pretty slick on Joanne Calderwood, and then she took that back. Just you know, got got the choke. She's good to go. Um, so that was pretty good, you know. Um, but and I love Joanne Calderwood. Big fan of hers too. But uh, it is kind of how you beat her, historically speaking. Uh, I think the big question for me is what 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 is Alexa Grasso's game plan when they're in the neutral, like when they're just kind of you know round starts you touch gloves now what what now what is your game plan here are you looking to take the lead and push the pace and potentially run into all these kicks uh are you looking to kind of let valentina lead the dance i've heard a lot of people theorize that's how you beat valentina is you let her you just kind of treat it like almost like anderson silva you forced a counter striker this great counter striker okay now you lead like, what, what can you do? Do you know how to step in? What are you going to do here? And I feel like that's how you get kicked up at times. Because Valentina, while she is going to try and kind of maybe move her way in with her hands, I'm much more worried about her trying to kick first uh, in those scenarios. I think that could cause way more problems. Um, it is a little easier dealing with kicks than it is dealing with punches, I think, when it comes to striking. I mean, just you kick, you kick the kicker back. You know, jam the airways up. I feel like I say that every every video I do. I feel like I'm saying that nowadays. But um, I, I mean, a kicking the boxer is always a great idea. And uh, you know, at the, at the start of this, I said I'm playing devil's advocate, and I, I I I don't know about this matchup. This matchup just feels a little rough. We recently saw Erin Blanchfield. Obviously, she's riding a crest of a wave. A lot of people saying that she's going to get the next fight against Shevchenko should Shev win this fight. And she was quite critical of Shevchenko's not so much getting the takedowns, but the sort of methods she uses to to get them. And she was calling mm -hmm. it quite one-dimensional. Is that a valid criticism of Shev? Does she maybe go to the well too often? I feel like she gets the same trip every time. Now that you mentioned that, because uh, I heard her say that and I went, oh, OK, like, you know, she's young, uh, incredibly talented and being talked up like crazy. Sometimes you say stuff. And even if you're not like trying to be cocky and saying it, sometimes you just say things. So I was like, oh, OK, that's kind of how my brain computed. That. I was like, OK, cool. All right. Now that you kind of say it like that. Um, yeah, I feel like she gets the same kind of trip every time. She's not like she's not going out there, you know, shooting an out, uh, like an inside or an outside single or, uh, you know, stepping in on an opponent's rush to get a like a super hot, like double leg takedown Matt Hughes style. She's not, you know, dirty boxing and then getting a trip couture style. She's just doing the same trip from the clinch basically every time. Um, it's always the same way. 
now that I really think of it. Uh, I think she get it. I think she got a hip toss on Amanda Nunes in their first fight. I think she hit a hip toss on her. But it does seem to be from the clinch. She wants to clinch up first and then get the takedown. So sometimes I've seen, I know in the Talia Santos fight, I do remember her kind of moving into the clinch. And I think that's where the headbutt happened. Is uh, when she stepped into the clinch, she ducked her head down and you know, kind of got got the headbutt un- unintentionally, potentially. I don't know. I wasn't there, you know. But um, yeah, no, that's a good point. I I feel like she does get it, but I, I at the same time. Aaron Blanchfield is a, a grappler first, superstar grappler. Uh, she can kind of do everything, of course, but uh, I think everyone thinks of her more of a grappling game. And Alexa Grasso isn't. That is some her base is boxing, and she had to add it. So I don't know if that will factor in as much here, admittingly. I think one thing that is going to factor in, and this is the main basis for my pick, is the size difference. I think Alexa yeah. Grasso has made a lot of improvements, especially when it comes to a jiu-jitsu and handling herself on the ground. But she's very small for this weight class. You've got to remember, this is a former strawweight who moved up. And mm. I get the feeling that if Shevchenko is able to get those takedowns, I don't see Grasso being able to fight them off. So I think yeah. Shevchenko could go quite grappling heavy. Whether she does enough to get the finish, I'm not 100% sure. But I think I could see a wrestling-heavy performance from Shevchenko, and that's how she ends up getting the win. I see kicks and then trips. That's kind of the path I see, kicks and trips. Um, and I think if she does finish her, she kind of finishes her like Chukagian, you know, crucifix, just kind of landing the shots. Uh, the size difference is like a, is a big one, too, because Grasso was a pretty good size, like, a little, little bigger, taller for sure, uh, at flyweight, or a strawweight. At flyweight, she seems like she's about average size. Maybe slightly below average size, but about average size for flyweight. Whereas Shevchenko always feels kind of big for the weight class, in a sense. At least to me. Um, and you've got to bear man, in mind I, as well that all three of Grosso's losses have come against wrestlers. Carla Esparza, mm-hmm. Tatiana Suarez, Felice Herrig. Yep. It's, uh, it's rough. Uh, I am, I, I have to think Shevchenko gets the win here. And, uh, lo siento, mi amor. I'm sorry. <sighs> but I really want Alexa Grasso to win. Uh, big fan of hers. Um, but you know, sometimes uh, I'm not. I'm I'm trying to be the professional here, not the fan. So I have to go with Valentina. Also, you're beating me in um, <laughs> our uh, in our predictions. Um, you're seven one and one. I'm six three and one. So I have to catch up somehow. I, I can't go with my heart anymore. Uh, Parker Porter hurt me last last uh, pay per view. You want that third Mexican champion of three months, though, don't you? Oh, I do. I do, because eventually they're going to need someone at heavyweight and that they're going to call me up instantly. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I, I would love it. Yeah, I, I genuinely would love it uh, because for me, um, my my grandpa's dead, but uh, he always loved seeing Mexican fighters. And like, so it was only really Kane for a while. And he passed away in 2021. But if Brandon Moreno would have won, 
that uh, he passed away in January of that year. But if Brandon Moreno would have won against Figgy in their first fight or something like that, I, I can just imagine the look and proud like uh, on his face. So stuff like that really speaks to me. Uh, like get, being able to show my mom like, hey, look at these like proud Mexican fighters. Like one of my favorite cards of all time is the first pay-per-view back from COVID with Cejudo uh, and Dominic Cruz and Tony Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, because the two title fights on the card, uh, all of them were of Mexican heritage. Weird fact, Justin Gaethje is is Mexican, you know, which is uh, always throws people off when they hear that for the first time. But it was that was a very proud moment for me. Be like, this is my favorite sport, one of my favorite things on the planet. Mom, look how awesome this is, you know. So I would love it. I will say one more thing before we move on to the main event. I am picking Chevchenko to win this fight, but this is the last title defense. Whether it's Tyler Santos, Manon Fielvo, or Evan Blanchfield, they will beat Chevchenko next time out, assuming she gets past Grasso. Yeah. If, if Valentina wins this, I'm going to take it a step slightly back. Um, I think this is the last one. If it's against Talia Santos or Manon Ferro, because I think those two are the two to do it right now. Aaron Blanchfield, I want another year. I am impressed leaps and bounds with with everything, but she did get a hit. Her striking defense isn't quite there for me just yet. So let's talk about our main event then, and the heavyweight title is on the line. It is John Jones returning to action after a three-year hiatus, and he's going to be taking on Seville Garn. Jones enters this fight as the minus 165 favorite. Now, this is the longest odds of John Jones's UFC career. So his previous longest was in the first Daniel Cormier fight, where he was minus 210. And so let's paint the story a little bit over what's happened. So... We talked about John Jones moving up to heavyweight for goodness knows how long. We've been teasing this idea since like 2013, 2014. The rumors start building. It could very well be true that John Jones is finally going to be moving up. And the plan is they want to do him versus Francis Ngannou. However, John Jones is wanting more money. Francis Ngannou are loggerheads over a new contract. Very conveniently, the UFC say, stuff Francis. You're being let go. You can go after Box Deontay Wilder or whoever you want. John Jones, here's all the money we would have given Francis Ngannou. You're coming back now, and we're giving you Seville Garn. Where do you stand on this one, Joe? Oh, man. I do not understand why we keep giving John Jones all this money and all this, like, I I don't... It, it's... The Francis... Like, the John Jones stuff... Okay, I... You know, I have my biases because I, I don't like him uh, for a feels like several multitudes of reasons. But um, the Francis and Ghana thing really irks me that I, I felt like the handling of that situation uh, was just disgusting by the UFC. So all that. And uh, but I do think they gave him a tougher fight for in terms of stylistic matchup. So, see, I'm very much the opposite. I really, I do, yes, because one of the sort of forgotten elements of the John Jones Francis Ngannou saga was the original plan was for Curtis Blades to be the backup, and I just Mm. found it very interesting that once they committed, yeah, John's going to be coming back. 
it switched from Jones to Garn. And my theory is, because Curtis Blades, with that combination of knockout power and being a far bigger fighter who's going to be wanting to take John down, that stylistically is a harder match for John Jones. So I think they've given him an easier opponent in Civil Garn. I, I, I see what you're saying. And I, I agree with that. Okay, so, uh, let me rephrase then. I think Curtis Blades is the worst matchup for John Jones at the heavyweight. I think Cyril Gaon is probably number two. And I think Francis Ngannou, would, out of the three of them, would have been probably the easiest one for him. That said, I still would have picked Ngannou to beat him. Um, but I think I think Gaon poses a lot of problems for John Jones. And this is that, funny enough, back when these rumors started, I think, or oh, not, not back when they started, that's, you know, I'm, I was, that was in 92, I think. I wasn't born yet. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's been teasing this forever. But I think it was like right before Cyril Gaon fought JDS. I think it was like in 2020 then. Uh, when I heard these rumors, I think it was like after the Dominic Reyes fight. And they were like, okay, we're, he might go up to heavyweight after that. You know? Okay. Um. I remember saying, and me and my best friend have said this, like, they should be, Cyril Gaon should be his welcome mat if he gets past JDS. Because that is a huge, tall, lanky, heavyweight kickboxer. It's not a guy Jones will, can think he's got a chance because he John Jones likes fighting these kickboxers. But it's a different kind of animal with Cyril Gaon. So, and I, I thought that matchup was interesting. Uh, and also, because I... You know, I, I thought Cyril Gaon was going to knock him out if they fought. Uh, so I was like, oh, OK, I, I want this fight to happen. It didn't happen. And now we're getting it. So I'm pretty excited personally for this matchup for hmm, probably the wrong reasons, I think. But we, we often talk about the cycle of MMA fans being around three years to five years. So there's going to be a lot of people that won't know about John Jones. They won't know what mm-hmm. he achieved at light heavyweight. What can these new fans seeing him for the first time expect? That's a hard one, actually, uh, because it's been a long time. And all the all the hype material they're going to show of him is not from his last one or two fights or two or three fights. I, I, I really doubt that. I think... They're going to show stuff like uh, the rest in peace, Stefan Bonner spinning elbow. It's a fantastic highlight. They'll show his like his takedown and then elbows to break the ribs and shatter them against Shogun. They're going to show uh, the Machida when he uh, dropped Machida and got him in the standing guillotine choke. Uh, they might even show the the flip over elbows against. They're they're going to show a lot of these like great highlights against a lot of like big 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 names in the sport. And because he used to fight completely different. Uh, he used to be a finishing, exciting uh, machine. That a uh, little controversial. Uh, but, you know, he used to have this. And then, like, at, in his last or in his fights with Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes, it seems like he just wanted to kind of have this really weird, slow plotting kickboxing match with very little attempts to like really wrestle. 
and he kind of would get beaten up and then somehow squeak past survive and and in one case i think in the dominic reyes uh steal a decision somehow i i thought thought dominic reyes won that fight yeah i i think that's i i hate i it's not the worst i've ever seen the worst i've ever seen for reference if anyone's interested ross pearson diego sanchez and albuquerque i knew that was coming I, 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 I think about that decision. That's the decision I judge all bad decisions off of. Like, that's the worst one I've ever seen. Is it worse? No, it's not worse than that one. Never mind. But uh, that Dominic Reyes one's pretty, pretty bad. I think. I, I thought Dominic Reyes clearly won against John Jones. Um, I thought it was very, very clear he won. I personally, and when I watch that fight back, I go, how? And I just get sad. And I don't want to be sad. So. Uh, but uh, the Thiago Santos put him in a lot of trouble, attacking the legs, uh, throwing a lot of heat, you know, and it, I, I don't know, because then there's also the fight with Gustafson where he took him down and just kind of pounded on him, you know, and granted Gustafson was well past his prime in my yeah. opinion at the time. Um, I feel like he kind of got that fight because of, more so, it's 205, which I hate saying it, historically has not been great since. So like the Chuck, um, Shogun, Chuck Shogun, Machida one. Rashad, Machida. Yeah, that era was great. Yeah. Shogun, Shogun, Machida, Rashad, because, man, I, I get a lot of flack for my opinion of Conor McGregor. One, not a fan of the person, but I, I do hold the belief that he was a very, very good fighter. He wasn't an all-time great, and people get a little upset at that. With John Jones, one, I don't like. I, I don't like to when someone pops hot. I, I've said this before. When you pop hot once for me, it brings into question your whole career. Because how many times have you just gotten away with it? And and I think you're out of the goat contender personally. But and I, I'm trying. to hope I don't get flack for this, but I, I kind of have that same thing where I, I take the microscope to the John Jones career, and I go, hmm. You know, he is a great fighter. He's a fantastic. He was a fantastic great fighter, but there are times in it where I go, ah oh, man, um, hmm. Kind of makes me kind of cools him off, and my like his legacy kind of cools off when you take a look at it. But that said, it is still remarkably impressive to go unbeaten for so long, uh, you know, because any given night something can change, you know. So we'll talk a little bit about Seville Garn. We've discussed John Jones in a lot of detail here. Let's talk about Seville Garn. Now, he is coming into the fight off a win. So he beat Tai Tuivasa at Fight Night Paris, which was, that was a fantastic fight. I actually watched it on delay because I was at the pub and they were showing Clash at the Castle, the WWE event over finite mm-hmm. power so i was a little bit aggrieved by that but both shows ended up being pretty good i managed to catch both of them uh also has mm-hmm. wins over Derek lewis alexander volkov jazino royce and strike and jds as you mentioned his only loss was to francis ngano at ufc 270 now a lot of people after that fight you made reference you only as good as your last fight and the narrative seems to be around sebel garn is yeah, this guy's a fantastic kickboxer, but he doesn't know how to wrestle. John's going to take him down and dominate him. My sort of bounce back to that, though, is how much of that was Sibyl Garn not being a good grappler? 
And how much of that was not being prepared for Francis Ngannou to go for a wrestling-based offense? Because Francis had never shown that at any point in his career. No. If... <laughs> I don't think anyone predicted that. Like, I that that image in my mind is so vivid of... of uh, in Ganu getting a double leg and then just lifting Gon in the air from with pure strength and slamming him down. It's it's shocking. Like no one expected that. And the big thing too is that was a mid-fight adjustment as well. That wasn't like his game plan. I don't believe it was his game plan going in. I think he because in the first I think it's the first two rounds, uh Gon was kind of piecing him up. Like landing question mark kicks landing stand uh, like landing hook kicks like i think he throws a crescent kick at one point and like knocks his arms out like and and ganu has that look in his face like oh no like he was gone was winning the striking in that fight pretty pretty clearly but then he started taking him down that opens up avenues but you know francis took him down and just held him down and shocked the world you know essentially with that one i don't think anyone expected that i i, I think that's more of a Nganu win than a serial gone loss if that makes sense and it's a different type of takedown as well because francis was just f you charge and take you down <laughs> john jones yeah. is going to be trying to work for trips and throws in the clinch yeah a lot of greco like uh it's not freestyle wrestling like a like a, a bow nickel is going to shoot double singles he could tie up and get trips and, and stuff like that as well in the clinch but john jones is very much clinch based taking you down he can shoot the double and single and they are very pretty when he does do him but uh it's it's always it seems like first first game plan is in the clinch it's not going to be a bull rush across the cage you know spear spear like at his legs What's your opinion been of John's grappling? Because that's something that a lot of people pointed the criticism towards with the Dom Reyes fight and Thiago Santos. Yes, he wasn't going for takedowns as much as he normally used to, especially in his prime. But the thing was, when he was getting them, they were very slow and they weren't really all that effective. I think he got one against Dominic Reyes and Reyes bounced straight back up. Yeah, I think he was just clenched against the cage the rest of the round, if I remember right. Um, he, like, we talked about this with Usman, with Usman, and, uh, like, with Kamara Usman, it's, is this legs just, sh like, his knees shot? Like, I mean, there's a clip doing the rounds of, you know, Joe Rogan saying that Kamara Usman can't even wear shoes on concrete without his knees just giving out. Um, and, uh, but it's kind of like that, like, you know, we kind of go, what, are John Jones's chicken legs snapping? Like, cause they're so slow, they're telegraphed and he doesn't have that, like just oomph strength to keep them down as well. Like he used to, like, I remember, you know, him and Shogun fighting and it's kind of an, even on the striking for a split, a second Jones gets a takedown very quick, very, very fast and doesn't just hold Shogun down. He's holding him down and bringing elbows and just shattering his ribs, which led to the finish of the fight. And, uh, like eventually over time, like all the body shots he was taking. But 
um, man, like it, it just has like lately it just hasn't seemed there. This was a guy, in my opinion, that was a top tier, top level grappler and wrestler, and it's gone. And his strengths are now like I'm just gonna be a kickboxer, striking and distance management. Yeah, and and if you watch him hit the pads, like. <laughs> I think it was Jack Slack said this, but it was a someone had been. I've seen this clip going around of it was pads from ten years ago. Him hitting mitts, right? And his trainers holding the mitts here and getting hit. That's it. And it's like, oh, this is the same. Look at he's still just as fast as he was ten years ago. And in the ones now, his trainer is, you know, meeting his hands in the middle. And it's like, oh, okay, that's that's a telltale sign you know, that you're not as fast as you were anymore. Okay. Like, it's so odd. Like, I, I, I've always thought his striking was was good, was pretty good, but it wasn't what's going to beat you. Like, he, he could piece you up on the feet if you're not ready for his length, his distance management, and his control. But uh, he's mostly going to clinch you. And, like, what he was doing to, you know, besides the eye poke, pinky, pinky ring in him, uh, but against Glover Teixeira, him, like, dirty boxing him, like, cranking on his shoulders and, like, wrenching his shoulders in terrible positions, then throwing uppercuts and hooks, and then doing it again over and over against Glover Teixeira was genius game plan. And it doesn't seem like he has that strength anymore, and it doesn't seem like he has that speed anymore. It seems like he's just length right now. So, final time on the show. Money where your mouth is. Who's winning this one? We'll say, uh, vote with your brain and then vote with your heart. Okay. Uh, with my brain, I don't think Jones takes Gone down. And I think he's going to have him try and have that slow, plotting kickboxing match. Which Gone is going to, you know, Cyril Gone him in the kickboxing. I think Cyril Gaon wins. And I think he could even finish John Jones because of the power difference between light heavyweight and going to heavyweight. Um, it's not just, you know, it's not like going from 145 to 155. This is going up 40 pounds, if not more. It's a lot more power. <laughs> um, so I could see it. Um, it could be even with body shots, it could be with low kicks. We've seen Cyril Gaon strike everywhere. And have a lot of power when hitting anywhere. Um, but I do think if he does finish him for the record, I think it'll be fourth and fifth round. John Jones, very, very durable, like incredibly durable uh, fighter. Uh, clearly, like his whole career, he's fought a lot of power hitters and he's taken some, he mostly isn't hit, but he has taken some shots. And um, super durable guy. And then the fan in me is gonna say, Oh, Cyril gone first round uh, is what I want, but it's not that that isn't happening. I, I do think Cyril gone does have the tools and I don't think John, I think also John Jones doesn't have that, the big key factor, which is the wrestling in his tool book anymore. My heart says, uh, I want Cyril gone to win this one. I'm not a big lover of John Jones on a personal level. I think there's a lot of, I think eventually there's sort of a, a litmus point where you do something which is just so bad that it just, mm. you can't. Look, we're in MMA. 
there's a lot of bad mm. people in the sport. But I think for me, John Jones, with when you cut, add all of his sort of misdemeanors together, it's just too much for me to really appreciate the guy on a personal level. Very talented fighter. Mm. I won't have anything against him, but I have to admit, I can't root for him. In terms of what I think is going to happen, I am picking him to win this fight. We've written off John Jones so many times before, and he's managed to prove everyone wrong. And I just get the feeling this is going to be another situation. And I think as well, the UFC are smart people. They're banking on John Jones coming back, winning this fight, and making people forget about Francis Ngannou. Yeah. It wouldn't be a good look for the UFC if Sewell Garn was to beat John Jones. If the, if the guy who was your new UFC heavyweight champion only has the belt because the guy who beat him left, that's not a good look for the UFC. So I've got the feeling they've weighed up the pros and cons and think John Jones is going to get this done against them. I think so too. I think that's why they didn't give him the Curtis Blades matchup. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that one's even worse. Like that Curtis Blades matchup. Oh man, that is a nightmare for John Jones. But um, I do think gone of the guys who deserve a title shot. As much as I would want Stipe in there, it's been like two years. Sadly, just I don't think I can. I don't think even I could pitch that one and have it make sense. Um, and he's forty. Like it's okay, kind of thing. But um, yeah, I think that's. Of the guys that deserve a title shot, I think gone is probably the easiest that's available, but I still think that's too much, you know. And it would also explain as well why the UFC booked Blades versus Pavlovich because they want Pavlovich to finish him off. Yeah, they really want to. I, I feel bad for Curtis Blades. Like, uh, I think sometimes he doesn't do himself any favors with some things he says. Um, but at the same time, uh, I feel bad for him because it feels like it. I, it definitely feels like the, the UFC. Is trying to just keep him down. Don't let him be anywhere near a title shot. Like, how many guys do we have to keep putting in front of him before he loses and loses all his momentum? You know, everyone uh, That's the only guy. Uh, <laughs> Derek Lewis, one more time. You know. Well, I have to admit, I, I did intend for this uh, preview show to be a little bit shorter than normal because obviously I've got a lot of commitments, I've got a lot of things to do. We've ended up talking mm. for nearly two hours, which is a good sign of how excited we are for this card. Um, I mm. think UFC on the whole 2023 hasn't really been the best. This hopefully is where things start turning things around. And you've mm. got John Jones, Conor McGregor is going to be back, so that's going to be another big card. So hopefully compared to 2022, this is a better year for the UFC. And I'm hoping just as a fight fan, that it delivers and we get some exciting fights on the main card. Absolutely. I think, I think for the pay-per-views, the three pay-per-views have been, or the two pay-per-views have been great so far. Uh, I should do like this. <laughs> the other side, I forgot. <laughs> I always have to remind myself, don't do the other way. But um, yeah, cause I, I remember hearing, uh, yeah, don't, uh, you do it this way facing outward. Cause in the UK, apparently means something else <laughs> i so i always gotta try to remember but um yeah uh love and peace trigun uh and um yeah i, I thought the first two pay-per-views this year have been great i thought they were really good in terms of fight quality it's just these apex cards you know it, it's there's a lot of them and there's like three fights on them that 
are usually worth it, but then it's a 12 fight card, so it's kind of okay. And you're going to be covering another one on your post-fight recap, which should be online by now, so you can get that on the end screen, which will be coming up in a few minutes. But this has Absolutely. been the UFC 285 preview show. My name has been Carl Bainbridge, repping my good old Newcastle United, fingers crossed for the cup final. That's been Joe Neal. And we're going to be back in two weeks' time because we've got another English theme coming up because we have in London for UFC 286, Leon Edwards versus Kamara Usman 3. We hope to see you there. This is the INC. Thank you very much for watching.